Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Brent Kachuba, founder of Spot Gamma. We talk to Brent about a range of options-related topics, including the rise of zero DTE options and the implications of these, market volatility in options, the importance of option expiration dates, rebalancing from large funds using options, and much more. Options and the corresponding dealer flow has many implications on the supply and demand and the pricing in the markets. Brent was generous enough to share many great visuals from SpotGamma's proprietary research, and the charts help us visualize and better understand the important forces at play. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with SpotGamma's Brent Kachuba. Brent, how are you? Thanks for coming back on with us, man. I'm doing great. Uh, happy to be back talking to you guys. I missed you. Sweet. Well, we're going to have a good, interesting discussion around uh, zero DTE options, market volatility, option positioning. Um, some of these expiration dates coming up and just overall, I think, try to learn and build our knowledge and our listeners and viewers knowledge on uh, what's, you know, an important part of the market and a large part of the market. Um, And that's all this discussion around options. And one of the things for anyone that's listening to us on audio, we highly encourage you, if you can, to pop over to our YouTube channel because Brent has been nice enough to bring a bunch of slides and visuals with us. Um, or with him, so that I think it's going to help sort of so- visualize some of these these concepts. So really appreciate appreciate that, Brent. Yeah, of course. Uh, the anything that means not having to look at me, I think, is a improvement. <laughs> there you go. Look at any of us, probably. Um, so yeah, let's start with this um, zero DTE options. You know, this is they've become sort of a little bit of a front and center here in the market, given their rise in popularity. So. You know, out of the gate, I just wanted to sort of talk about what these things are and, and maybe, you know, pick your brain a little bit about about these types of options. Yeah, uh, it's, it, it's been a uh, it's, it's been a remarkable rise of options volume. You know, you can look back even to 2019 and and um, and see just this increase in options volume. And, and the general sort of idea of why this all matters is because every time an option trades, in theory, there needs to be a certain amount of hedging flow tied to you know those options trades and so as the options volume increases in in theory we need to have more hedging flow you know which is the underlying stock or or futures trade which which in theory moves the market and so on this slide here i plotted the the real long-term view of putting call volume so you can see call volume here in red and put volume in purple and what you'll notice is that in march uh april excuse me of 2022 they launched Tuesday expiration options in the S&P, then in May they launched Thursday options in the S&P 500. So that meant that at that point in May of 2022, there was an options expiration for the S&P 500 index every single day of the week. Uh, Before that, there was Monday, uh, Wednesday, Friday expirations. And then in September of 2022, it became official that, okay, this pilot program is now the real deal, and they launched officially these daily expirations. And then the exchanges followed on with that in November of daily expirations in the spiders, the SPY ETF, and then the Qs. And so what you can see here is that on this chart is that there's a remarkable increase in options volume tied to those dates, right? And, And you can see that shift up. And what we've seen is that really those 
whatever the flow was that adopted that volume, adopted it very quickly. And then that volume has since plateaued, right? So it's like immediately everyone started trading these things. And then it, you know, that volume just has basically stood still uh, over time. And if you look at it on a percentage of volume basis in terms of looking at zero DT versus non-zero DT, whatever it is, the volume has really stayed steady. So, you know, if there was like some extra alpha in there or, you know, some other kind of new use case, it really hasn't shown itself in terms of an increase in, in volume. So the point is, is that whatever the use cases seems to have stabilized. Um, we did a in-depth study on this and, you know, not to plug our YouTube channel, but if you go to our YouTube channel, you can see what our uh, deep dive and all the little data points is. And, and what we view uh, is that the zero DT flow causes mean reversion in the market. And we say that because anytime there's a dip in the market, you see zero DT call buyers come in uh, or put sellers come in and that pressures the market to go higher. And conversely, if the market rallies, we see call sellers or put buyers come in and we believe that pressures the market lower. And so you can see this mean reversion come in on a daily basis on our website, spotgammon.com. We have a zero DT monitor, so you can see this flow come out in real time. Um, and what we've talked to clients about and what we've heard is that there are these kind of inexplicable sudden reverses in the market where, you know, you think a trend is setting up, then all of a sudden the market will just switch. Yesterday, I mean, today's June 13th. Yesterday, we saw the market just kind of like for no reason, just you know, it was quiet all day, right? We had CPI today and, and FOMC tomorrow. But yesterday, for whatever reason, the market just rallied 1% at 2.30. And, and if you watch the zero DT flow, you could see that zero DT flow comes in all of a sudden. Call buyers came in uh, to the tune of like a billion dollars of Delta Notional and, and up the market goes. Um, so these are the fingerprints that are being left on a daily basis. And I, it's hard to draw longer term conclusions from this at this point, because number one, we haven't gone through that many market cycles, I would argue, since the launch of zero DT. Uh, second, you know, there's been a lot of interest rate changes, which I think has impacts on underlying liquidity. Um, you know, we've had, uh, you know, a big drawdowns. There's a lot of strange things happening in implied volatility, you know, throughout the year. And so, um, I think it's hard to kind of like pull out the factor of exactly, you know, what the impact is, but there are signs here and I can, I'm going to show some of these in a few minutes. Um, there are signs here that there is an impact on volatility. In other words, how much the market is moving based on this. Do you have any sense of like, of the volume, like how much is retail and how much is institutional? Just, I don't know if there's anything, any data out there. You have like a, mm -hmm. just a sixth sense. I was reading this Bloomberg article that was kind of talking about, it was like highlighting all these retail traders that were kind of using it and, you know, them in different yeah. ways. And it was a little bit like, like speculative gambling, but then I've heard, I've talked to other people that know it's like a lot of institutional sort of yeah. option buyers in here. So what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, there's an important delineation to make here. First is in the SPX, SPY, and Qs, there's an expiration every single day. So we refer to that as zero DTE. But if you look at single stocks, Apple, Tesla, you know, et cetera, those only have expirations every Friday. So we kind of classify those as the zero DT for single stocks. And so if you break it down, what you'll generally see is about in the SPX big contracts, five to 10% is retail. And that comes from various bank research reports. You can actually monitor the retail flow explicitly on our site as well. And that basically syncs up. And then when you look at the spiders, which obviously has a smaller notional value on a relative basis and some of this individual stock, that, that flow will get, you know, anywhere from 10 to sometimes towards 50%, depending on the stock that you're looking at and the time of day you're looking at. 
um, you know, like in GameStop or something, the retail flow will come in hot and heavy. And then in Tesla, there'll be a flash in the pan in terms of retail and then it'll cool off. So, you know, that 10% number is one that seems to come up quite often, uh, particularly when you're talking about the bigger S&P, you know, 500 index. And, and the use case is different. There are institutions out there that may substitute the use of futures trading uh, for zero DT contracts, right? So rather than buy a future, I'm going to hedge myself by buying a zero DT call and just kind of eating that cost, or I can offset some of my hedging exposure, you know, uh, the various Greeks through using these zero DT contracts. Uh, I think there's a lot of quantitative funds. We've seen quotes from the likes of like AQR out there saying, hey, you know, zero DT gives us more at bats, right? Because the strategy that I'm running uh, suddenly can run with this op uh, options expiration that happens every day. Um, and then, you know, there's some people that talk about this idea that there's a lot of uh, wealth managers that want to sell uh, those zero DT call spreads and put spreads as a way to generate income. So the use case is fairly widespread, I'd say, um, but it tends to be more institutional, meaning professional money managers, albeit under that bracket of institutions, there's a lot of different flows, right? There's dealers and quantitative funds and wealth managers and that and that kind of thing. So is this coming out of like options that are further out in the in the future? Like, are, since people are using these more, are they using options less that are further out in the future? Yeah, you can see the impact of that. There's definitely this shift in, in in percentage of open interest and things like that, where you know you definitely cannibalize some of the longer dated flow by having these zero DT contracts. And if you think about it, like if you wanted to hedge like the FOMC for tomorrow, like let's I don't really know what the Fed's going to say tomorrow. Uh, but I'm a little worried. Like I got a long portfolio, let's say. So I'm just going to buy a zero DTE contract, right? To hedge out Powell saying, you know, we're raising rates by 50%. And then I don't have to worry about it. Whereas before what I had to do is buy like a contract like a month out, worry about the decay, worry about my cost and all that. Now I can just say, I'm going to take this cheap hedge, isolate that event risk, and then I'm, and then I'm done. I don't have to worry about it, right? Because if Powell doesn't do anything, well, on Thursday, we're off the races and all is good, right? So you definitely see that cannibalization. Does this... You talked about kind of a mean reversion thing with this. Does this also, I've heard other people talking about it saying like there is the mean reversion, but it also kind of opens up the tables so that like a 4% decline in the market could become 8% if this went the other way or something. I mean, is there, is there any truth to that? Do you think? But yeah, I mean, everything in, in finance is about, you know, uh, balance basically. Right. So if you have a situation where everybody's short zero DTE options, you know, that can be the situation that causes a lot of problems, right? Cause if everybody has to cover their position, uh, then that could suddenly force flow the other way. Or if everybody comes out right now and just buys zero DT puts, then that could push the market down. And that and that was the whole Volmageddon, you know, JP Morgan piece that came out and got a lot of attention. Um, but the 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 number of kind of like qualifiers that they had to put in place to get that Volmageddon scenario just made it feel very unlikely. So if I just first started this idea of mean reversion, you could see situations and then kind of the most famous one a lot of people talk about was, I think it was October 13th of 2022. There was a really nasty CPI print and the S&P uh, traded down like 5% pre-market. I think the S&P opened at 3,500. And, and just after the market opened, you saw these giant zero DT call positions come in and the market rallied all the way back intraday, right? I think the market was up four and a half percent intraday. And that's the mean reversion flow that's kind of like, you know, that that is like the situation of mean reversion where if I own put options or if I own, let's say, yeah, if I just own puts, right, like three months out puts and the market gaps down 4%, I don't have to close that put anymore. I could just buy some zero DT calls to hedge myself in case the market rallies back. And so that kind of situation is where you see the mean reversion. 
where things can get out of control is when a lot of people get caught off sides. And this is the tail risk. And, you know, like if you look at today and you look at what the, the market was pricing, the market was pricing uh, before the market opened, the zero DT straddle was trading for something like uh, 75 basis points, meaning that the market was pricing in a 75 basis point move. And so traders will sell zero DT options against that price, right? It's pretty cheap price and, and, and prices can get even lower. You get a 50, 50 basis point zero DT straddle. We've seen some of that recently. So if anything causes the market to move more than that straddle price or the, the implied vol for the day, then in theory, that's going to force traders to cover. And anytime you have, just like in a margin call or anything like that, anytime you have forced covering, that's where things can kind of spiral uh, and really move. The caveat to all this with the zero DT is that they expire at the end of the day. So any exposure that's tied to any of this, in theory, is gone at the end of the day, right? The books are all cleaned up. The positions are gone. It all settles. It's all, you know, it's all moot point at closing. So you don't have this persistent pressure of, you know, someone's buying or everyone's buying, you know, one month outputs where every day there's this exposure that has to get hedged. Uh, and so I think that really relieves, you could get a flash crash scenario more so than a, than a real persistent, you know, clubbing because of the, because of the offsides. So does, does it seem like, it, could it be that on that one day you could get a much more substantial move then because yeah, everybody's using zero DTE versus if they were spreading it out over, you know, over time? 100%, 100%. And, and that's why I say it's like a flash crash scenario where, you know, you, you can get these imbalances intraday, but what generally happens is, and, and what alleviates a lot of this pressure is, if I'm long some puts for today, and let's say the market just moves down, you know, real, very sharply, I, I'm incentivized to close that position out because the gamma of that position is so high, the sensitivity of that option to what the market is doing is so high that in a lot of ways, I, I, I'm better off monetizing or closing out my position when it's advantageous, right? And and so what that happens is then the pressure is relieved. So like if we're all long zero DT puts and the market crashes 2%, well, I'm going to start selling my puts and taking my money, right? I'm going to, I'm going to close that position out because if the market starts to rally, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm bleeding very quickly and it becomes a reflexive feedback loop. I mean, if the three of us are all, you know, long puts, right? And, and Justin starts closing out hundreds of thousands of zero DT positions, that could start the market to rally up, right? Or recover, and then Jack, you're gonna go, oh man, like this is going against me now. I might as well take, you know, take my gains. You close out your puts and the market keeps going. And then I got to chase finally to get out as well. So you get, you know, there's this kind of like feedback loop in the flow that that comes along with this. How do you think like a lot of our listeners will be like longer term investors who don't use options. How do you think they should think about this? I mean, some people seem to talk about this, about this as a really big deal for the market that people need to worry about. Other people kind of say, you know, yeah, it's something going on behind the scenes, but it's not in terms of like moving the overall market dramatically over time. It's not that big of a deal. Like where do you fall kind of on that continuum? I think for the longer term investor, there could be some potential opportunities as maybe there's certain days, right? A couple of days a year where zero DT really drives an imbalance. And that's either in the market as a whole or in some individual single stocks, right? And we're going to talk about this, I think, in a minute where, you know, how you can take advantage of this. So I think there's some distortions that can be created in the short term. Over the longer term, there's no smoking gun obvious signal here as to what the zero DT is doing. Like I have some evidence, obviously, that mean reversion is, is increasing, uh, but we're also coming off this time where volatility was so extreme, right, um, in the market that you know it's hard to build out the factors that say, okay, you know, the reason that the market is now, you know, VIX is back at 13 is because of zero DTE. Um, you can make you can make that case, but it's not you know conclusive at at, at this point. So. I think as time evolves a little bit, we'll understand a little bit better. But 
again, for the for the longer term investor, there's some short term distortions that can occur because of this, and and we can identify some of those. So I want to switch next to, to volatility. Um, it's something I don't know a ton about, but obviously a lot of us are watching it. You know, a lot of people monitor the VIX now more than they used to in the past. But like as I've studied it more, I've kind of learned the VIX is not the entire picture of mm -hmm. volatility. And you know, one of the things we, we've seen a lot of people talking about is this idea of fixed strike vol, which we're going to ask about in a second. But, but before we do that, I want to just ask about the VIX in general. Just for anybody who doesn't know, can you just talk about what the VIX actually measures? Sure. So the the VIX measures the implied volatility of the S&P 500. And the way that it does that is it measures S&P 500 index options that expire roughly 30 days out in times. You know, it changes a little bit, 27 to 32 days, basically. But what it's meant to tell you is what how much movement do traders expect in the S&P 500? And so it's become known as the fear gauge because typically the VIX will spike right as the market crashes. But all it's doing is expressing that traders are expecting kind of higher volatility. And so one of the things that's come about now is with the impact of zero DT or the release of zero DT, there's the VIX one day contracts now and the VIX, you know, kind of, uh, excuse me, not contracts, but one, VIX one day index, VIX nine day index. There's these shorter term indices. And in options land, sort of the argument is, does the VIX still have value, right? Because all these options now trade zero DT. I mean, 45% roughly of the S&P 500 is zero DT, you know, trading. So there, there's a lot of volume that's concentrated in the very shortest term um, expirations. And so the, the question is, is the VIX still valuable? And what I would say is it is because the, the, the way that you can make that assessment is in March, there was the bank crisis, right? And suddenly the zero DT volume subsided and people started to buy longer term options. They started to hedge their tails because they were worried about the systemic risk of all these banks going down. So you suddenly saw, you know, the VIX spiked rather violently, but you suddenly saw these longer dated S&P 500 options trades come in. So what I would say is that the utilization of the VIX or the way that people watch it and the information you get from it is being augmented or, or adjusted maybe uh, as a result of the zero DD flow. Um, and then the second part of your question is, you know, we're in this situation now where there's a, a lot of demand for call options and the VIX measures both puts and calls. So if there's a lot of demand for call options, you can have a situation where the VIX is going up as the market goes up, which is counterintuitive to what a lot of people think. But in this environment here with heavy options, demand, et cetera, you can get a lot of demand for calls and you can have the VIX stabilizer actually increase slightly uh, as the market's going up, which is, again, a little bit counterintuitive, but but ultimately the VIX is just a volatility gauge, not a not really a fear gauge. So you talked about like the 30-day VIX, these shorter-term VIXs coming in, but is the 30-day VIX, I mean, is it, you know, is, is it like we have to draw a line here and say post-zero DTE, it's now distorted in some way? Or is it like if we look at it relative to history, does it not really impact that? If you look at the correlation between the S&P 500 index and the VIX, uh, the correlation has changed right, since the launch of zero DTE. And so there is enough evidence here to say, yes, there is a difference in the way that the uh, the VIX responds to market crashes and its ranges on the day and things like that. And and a lot of this is because so much action now takes place in the zero DTE space, especially when you consider out to five days, right? In the S&P 500, that's where 50 plus percent of the volume is taking place. So there's all this movement in five day contracts uh, and zero DTE contracts and the VIX is just only looking at 30-day contracts, so it's not picking up any of that flow, right? It's not picking up any of that reaction. And so just to give you an idea of this, I have this chart here of term structure. 
And what term structure does is it monitors the implied volatility called, we call it the at the money implied volatility of the S&P. So the at the money option is if the S&P opens today at 30, 4,300, what is the implied volatility of that contract, right? That, that's the at the money. And what you see is that the implied volatility is very elevated for the first few expirations. In other words, traders who are trading the zero DT are looking for a lot of volatility today because there may be a lot of volatility around, you know, the CPI or FOMC. But if you look at the, the price of that contract, the implied volatility of that contract out 30 days, the implied volatility is relatively low, right? Nobody cares. So 30 days on time, no one cares about volatility. No one's pricing volatility. But for today, people are pricing a relative uh, higher amount of volatility because, you know, of the zero DT phenomenon or the, or the reaction to whatever the market's doing today. Um, and so this kind of epitomizes what the VIX is missing, right? Because if you, you know, the, the term structure here across the X axis is we see every single expiration date. And then we're looking at the at the money implied volatility for every expiration date. So in this case, what is the 43, the market closed around 43.50 today, right? What is the vault implied volatility for the 43.50 contract every day uh, for every expiration on time? And so again, if you look 30 days on time, which is roughly July, you can see by this white line on the, on the chart here that the, the curve or the, the, the curve is very flat out there, right? Out in time versus there's some backwardation, we call it in the near term because people are pricing in short-term volatility, i.e. volatility today due to CPI and FOMC. Um, so again, all of this elevated short-term volatility that the traders are pricing in from today with the CPI, tomorrow FOMC, none of that's being picked up or, or, or reflected in the VIX because that looks at the 30-day contract. Okay. And I think this gets us into this concept of, of fixed strike vol. Um, you know, one of the things I've noticed, like when you, you know, people like me who know nothing about volatility are sitting there watching the VIX all day and people like you who know what they're talking about or not, uh, as much at least. And, you know, one of the things I, I noticed in this, in this recent increase in the market is a lot of the vol guys were kind of saying, you know, on these updates, you would see the VIX still down a little bit, although I think it has gone up a little bit on the most recent updates. Yeah, it did. But, it did. but a lot of them behind the scenes were saying, even before that happened, they were saying actually volatility was up today because fixed strike vol was up today. Um, yeah, I was wondering yeah. if you could talk about what that is and like where, where how people are measuring that. Sure. So one of the things I would say to, to your point, the VIX was up a little bit with the CPI and the, the FOMC tomorrow. And so you know, there, there's still some longer data hedging occurring around some of these events. Um, and if you, you can use this thing called the rule of 16. And what that is, is you divide implied volatility. So whether the VIX is 14 or 16, whatever it is, if you divide that by the number 16, that tells you what traders are expecting as a one day move for the S&P 500. And so you can hit these, what I call lower bounds in the VIX, where, you know, if you start to get a VIX of like 10, you know, which is kind of like a historic real low, you know, that's like a market pricing in 65, 70 basis points of movement in the, in the S&P. So you can have a 50 point rally or a 50 basis point rally in the market, right? And that means the VIX was underpricing volatility. So you can have these situations where the VIX has to go up because the market rallied 50 basis points, right? In, in the same way that the market crashed 1%, the VIX would have to go up. So what, what, what has happened recently several times is that the VIX has gone down, even though, you know, to your point, traders come out and say, well, no volatility went up. And, and the reason is because the VIX has a weighting to what we call at the money contracts. And so if you look at the way that volatility is priced, there's this skew or a smile in the way that implied volatility is priced over various contracts. So on your screen here on the x-axis are the strikes for the S&P 500. So you can see here there's 4305, you know, 4350, et cetera. And this is from Bloomberg. In red is 
Uh, on the y-axis is the implied volatility for each one of these strikes, and this is on a one-month basis. So last week, uh, excuse me, it's actually yesterday, the 12th, on this red line here, you see the implied volatility for every single strike, right? So at the 43.55, the implied volatility was about 11.5, right? 11.5. And what happened day over day is that the implied volatility of these contracts all went up. And you can tell that because this white line, the white curve here, which was today's implied volatility reading from uh, around nine o'clock this morning, so or eight o'clock this morning, so a little bit before the uh, CPI. You can see that the implied volatility for each of these strikes is higher, right? So the 43.55 contract for yesterday was 11 and a half. Remember, this is looking at the same one month contract. 43.55 for yesterday and today, excuse me, 11 and a half for the 43.55. And today, that same level of implied vol was 12 and a half, right? So volatility actually went up when you look at it on a fixed strike basis. And further, what you can see is there's this, again, this distortion or kind of curve, right, that happens here. And we highlighted in this green box where at the time the S&P opened around 4350, all of these calls above had a relatively even higher implied volatility. So what you take away from this is that there is a demand for call options that is pushing the implied volatility on a fixed strike basis higher, right? So while the at the money had an implied volatility increase from 11.5 to 12.5, the 4395 contract went from an 11 implied vol to a 12 or 12 and a half implied vol. So it had a relative higher gain uh, at these higher strikes. And so what this is reflecting is some call demand is, is, is the way that we would interpret this. Now, if you look to the VIX, you would see maybe the VIX went down or this was or a lot of where the discussion came around is the VIX went down. Now, why would the VIX go down when you see these fixed strike implied vol measurements occur? This comes back to this idea of at-the-money options, right? On Tuesday, the at-the-money contract was the, let's say, 43.25, just for sake of argument, right? And you can see here in red again that the at-the-money contract had roughly an applied volatility of 12. So let's just say that meant that the VIX is 12 because the VIX has a weighting to the at-the-money contract, right? So the VIX is going to say, great, at-the-money for today, which would be Monday morning, is a 12. Now, what happens is the market rallies overnight, uh, or throughout the day, right? And such that on Tuesday morning, the new at-the-money contract is, let's say, the 43.75. Well, the, the at-the-money implied vol for the 43.75 is an 11 and a half. So all the VIX did was reflect the fact that we changed the at-the-money strike from 43.25 to 43.75. And implied volatility is lower at that strike. So all that happened was the VIX slid down this curve, so to speak. And that is why implied volatility went lower so you know in general there's like this idea of put skew is like everyone is i think is aware of this idea even if you're not in the options world it's like after the 1987 you know uh october crash right suddenly puts carry a higher implied volatility they care they carry a higher relative value to calls right so if you look at the 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 put implied volatility or the put price of a five percent out of the money put it generally is higher than a five percent out of the money call right and that's because of this idea that, in general, people own puts because of this crash protection, right? Generally, people are long S&P 500 or long stocks, and they, they buy puts for protection. So that's why you have this skew that you can see in the S&P 500 here where, you know, puts have empire, higher implied volume than calls. And this is, this is almost always how it looks in the S&P 500. You almost never see this curve kind of inverted where calls have a higher implied vol level. And so... You know, oftentimes what happens when you see the VIX slide down or go up, it's just a function of 
the at the money strike changing, right? It's not that the volatility of that individual strike necessarily changed that much. It's just we're shuffling around what the at the money strike is. So if we go down sometimes, you'll see the VIX go up, but all we did was shift from this 4375 strike, which had 11 implied vol, to the 4325 strike, which had a 12 implied vol, right? And that's all that happened is the VIX slid up this curve and, and volatility changed along with it. I know volatility is an ambiguous concept. So there's probably like no, not one good way to measure it or not one complete way to measure it. But so do you look at stuff like this when you want to see if volatility is going up or down? Will you look at this more than you look at the VIX? I, you know, the, what I tend to do is I thumb through a bunch of different charts. So there's there's some skew indexes that you can look at, for example, like uh, well, the skew index is one. There's another one, SDEX. You know, there's, there's some of these bigger picture things that you can look at and see if there's something kind of funky going on. And then you can kind of drill in and look at things like fixed strike vol or look at skew or term structure and start to put together a little bit you know, more pieces of the puzzle, right, to what traders are doing. The general idea is that if you have higher implied volatility, generally what that means is demand, right? So if, if put implied vol is going up, people are buying puts. If, if put implied vol is going down, they're selling them, right? There's That's kind of like the, the, the high-level takeaway. Now, under the hood, you can say, well, the traders are pricing in an event or this or that or the other thing. But... At the highest level, that's kind of what you're looking at, right? Is there demand for these options? Higher prices means demand is increasing. And that's that's sort of how you take. So when you look at this call applied vol on the fixed strike basis going up, on a, especially on a relative basis here, this little slight curve, that's telling us that like, oh, before the, C, the CPI reading, people were buying calls here. People are trying to get long in front of this event, right? Um, and then, you know, what you want to take away from that can also be deliberated uh, as well. But you know, this is part of what we get, you know, paid to do is is to to look at all these different metrics and try to, you know, glean some edge out of it. Yeah, I assume someone would need access to something like Bloomberg to do this. Is there's not like some index that's like publicly available where you can look at this kind of thing? No, there's not a fixed strike index. Uh, we're we're developing a fixed strike dashboard, and and essentially it looks like a big grid, right? And it and it's like a heat map essentially that that changes. So you know, this is becoming a hotter topic, a, a, a more nuanced thing to look at. And, you know, as this options volume increases and more traders come in, you know, these are some of the metrics that you start to hear and you, and you start to talk about. Um, and again, on a, on a daily basis, it's not terribly interesting uh, for most people out there, right? But sometimes there are these big shifts in this data that really kind of should wake up all investors, you know, regardless of your time horizon or whether or not you trade options at all, right? Because this information is you know, sometimes telling you things that are that are rather important. Is there any validity to this idea that as fixed strike vol is going up along with the market, that that's some sort of red flag, like that the market's more vulnerable to do a decline when they're going up together? Yeah, it, it's a supply and demand thing, number one. So anytime you see vol up, market up, that is a sign that there's some exuberance in the market. That doesn't necessarily mean the market has to crash. It just means that whatever this move is, it's it's overdone, right? It's it, it's time for a pause. And this is one of the things I think longer longer term traders or investors can use as an interesting signal. There's a lot of people like to overwrite. And I think when you look for these signals of market up, vol up, or stock up, vol up, if you look at an individual stock, those are times where you can make an argument that it's effective to sell calls or overwrite my position, right? It's great that people are buying calls. There's a lot of bullishness in that, but sometimes it just gets overheated, right? And, and that implied volatility increases when a stock ramps up, like all these AI stocks, I have a, I have a chart we can or a slide I can on show on this. Um, for example, on here I have what we call the IWM. It, we call this the 25 delta risk reversal. All this is doing is looking at the relative price of a 25 delta call, so kind of a slightly out of the money call versus a slightly out of the money put. Right, that's all this is showing you. 
And so anytime this line shoots higher, that's telling us that the value of the call is jumping relative to the value of the put, right? So, you know, obviously if the market's crashing like it did back here in, in November of uh, 2000, and this is actually 21, that makes sense, right? People are buying puts, they're scared. Nobody wants to buy a call. Market's crashing, put values are exploding. You know, VIX goes to 40. That makes sense that this line will go down because the put values are increasing. Well, what we've actually seen, as you can see here over the last two weeks, there's this massive jump in call prices relative to puts. That's telling us that there is all this kind of excessive demand in IWMs, and IWMs have pretty good performance, but this is at a level now that you just don't see when you look back historically. And you can look at this on individual stocks as well. And the point with this is that as call prices increase, the odds or, or opportunity for you to make money on calls goes down, right? Because you're paying more for calls, you need the market to move more, or you need the stock to move more as the call prices go up for you to get a payoff. And that's what this implied volatility is telling you, higher option price, right? Higher implied vol, higher relative option price. I need more movement, more volatility to get this payoff. So if I'm overpaying for calls, I can have a situation where I'm buying calls and can never get a payout. Those are great times to, to arguably sell calls against my long stock positions because the froth is in there, right? There, there's a lot of elements or, or signals that, hey, you know, this is overdone. We're due for a pause or, or, or some pullback. And so, again, this is one of these shorter term signals or volatility signal that can be very effective for, you know, a, a longer term uh, trader or investor. Options expiration is this week, right? Friday. So we have the Fed tomorrow and then there's a very, you know, a, a humongous uh, options expiration on Friday. That's plotted on your screen here. So what I did is I plotted what we call Delta Notional. So if you wanted to consider what the stock equivalent was to you know, what an option stock size equivalent was, and that's what we do by looking at Delta. And what you can see on your screen here in blue uh, or, or purple, I guess I will call it, uh, is the call Delta. So how big is the notional value of these call positions when you represent it to stock? So if all the options liquidated right now, you know what's the value of that? Um, and you can see it's, about $600 billion is very large. And then the put side, you know, we're, we're quite a bit small. That's what's in teal. So this is a very call heavy options expiration. And these quarterly expirations tend to be extremely large. You can see that the next largest expiration is June, uh, January, right? And what's interesting about this is that the last time we had a call expiration that was this large, it was January of 2020. In January of 2020, was a pretty nasty market movement, right? From basically Jan 1 to Jan OPEX, the market traded down, I think 10, 10%, 13%, somewhere in that neighborhood. In the bottom of that market uh, drop, <clears throat> at least short-term bottom, was the day after options expiration. I think it was January 25th. <clears throat> and what happens is call positions, as they go in the money, they gain in value. So if I bought a call a month ago or two months ago or three months ago, whatever it is, and the market rallies, my call keeps gaining in value, right? So when Apple goes up 15% in a month or NVIDIA goes up 80% in a month or whatever it is, those calls are all gaining in value. And the theory is that the hedge is required from dealers and market makers to offset that risk is gaining in value, right? Because if, if I'm short a bunch of calls as a dealer or market maker and, and these calls continue to go up, I have to buy more and more and more stock to, to maintain my hedges. And so... You know, the, 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 I always talk about this is like the January OPEX. These are the leaps. They always have a huge expiration. This is like the Pelosi trade, right? She's famous for like buying like massive numbers of Google and Amazon calls or whatever. 
and then they run up in the money and then she trick she closes those all out in January and they expire. So this is like a similar thing here in June because the market's rise so much, the value of these calls has, has risen immensely. And by default, the way that we look at this is that these calls have to be closed out. They could be rolled higher or adjusted or whatever it is. But on net, we think there's a lot of hedging flow that should lead to some short-term selling in, in some of these stocks that have been moving up a lot. Um, and that's as a function of, of hedges being unwound and, and positions shifting. And, and these positions are forced to shift because, you know, they're, they're expiring. So, you know, as a trader, if I own these calls, I have to make an adjustment. And if I don't, I'm going to be assigned, you know, a whole lot of stock. So when you look at like options expirations that end up being major market moving events versus ones that don't, I mean, what are, what are the common characteristics? Is it like this where the market's moving in one direction and there's a lot of open interest in that same direction? Is that where you have the, the tendency to maybe have a reversal? Yeah, the, the the default way that we look at this is that mean reversion is what we generally look for in the big options expiration. So number one, what is the size of the expiration? Uh, the quarter of the expirations are almost always large. December in particular, the year-end expiration is always very, very large. The monthly expirations, you know, it's like a stock-by-stock -stock basis, whether it is, you know, meaningful. And when I say meaningful, it's like how much underlying liquidity is tied to these expirations. Um, and then the weeklies can even matter now because of the increase of zero DTE. So by default, the way that we look at this is mean reversion. The market's had a big rally here, uh, huge call positions. As those come off, we would look for some short-term weakness or consolidation in the market as a result of uh, all of these calls expiring. In a similar fashion, if you look at historic lows in the in the stock market, and I think we've talked about this before, you know, you get March of 2020 or December of 2018 or June of last year, um, there's huge put positions that expire and the market rallies the Monday after. In June of 2000, just a year ago, we had the complete opposite situation. The market was making its, I think it was its year-to-date low, was in June. Uh, it wasn't the low of the year, it was a major low. And the market rallied immediately after options expiration. So that turning point is something that, you know, a lot of people have caught on to and are aware of now. And, and what I think is interesting, um, I put this slide together. If you faded the move, which means that I just went back and I looked at all of the options expirations since 2020. And I said, okay, if the market was weak into this expiration, let's imagine we bought the market at the close on Friday of expiration and held it for one week, right? Makes sense? So if the yep. market sold off into Friday, I buy the market on Friday and hold it for a week. And that return was 23% if you did that from January 2020 to today, right? That's a pretty good return. Just what, what I say, you know, fading the move or playing mean reversion after OPEX. Um, and, and it's pretty well distributed. It's not that there's like one day that just made you 20%, right? And uh, and the other times were kind of like, you know, noise, right? The, the, the data here seems pretty conclusive that, that there is something here. Now, what's fascinating to me about this, and like, I actually, you know, I was like, I knew I was going to talk to you guys. I started to put this together as we have this June OPEX. Something changed such that if you do that same trade from September of 2022 to today, or, you know, obviously May OPEX is the last one, you actually lose 8% doing that same trade. So 73% of the time, historically, you make money doing the flip trade, but after September of 2022, it only works one out of three times. Is that because people are front running it? I wish I had a beautiful answer to that. <laughs> um, number one, people are aware of this options flow. The second one, which I can't help but kind of like point to, is the fact that zero DT became an official, uh, you know, listed 
Andy, whatever it is, on in September of 2022. So September of 2022 was officially when Zero DT launched. Now, again, May kind of picked up, and, and that's when the contracts were available. But, you know, this September date is when they're like, okay, these are going to be listed in perpetuity. And so for whatever reason, the OPEX flip trade broke, right, at the same uh at the same time these are are listed it's a it's a it's there's a lot of these like coincidental factors that seem to come into play and again the tricky part is like well you know the markets had this incredible rally and again all the rate volatility and you know these different things that are moving around it's a little difficult to say this is the reason why but the you know it's a thing like walks like a duck talks like a duck it's a duck i think um but you know it's a fascinating thing to me the other thing that's really interesting to me is that if you looked at, rather than fading the move on a week to week basis, so if the week was weak coming into OPEX and I held it for another week, what happens if I just played a one day meaner version? What's, what's, what blew my mind on this is that from January 2020 to the present, the return of that strategy is a zero, meaning you wouldn't make any money by, by fading the OPEX move if I just played it on Mondays, right? But if you fade the move on Monday, you actually lose 3%. So that's another, you know, this other time frame, right, of saying, okay, if everybody's got to adjust their hedges on Monday after OPEX, and that should clear everything out. Well, you know, that's why I wanted to look at what happens just one day kind of mean reversion play. It it breaks in a whole different way. The distribution, which you see on here, is incredibly normal. Like, you know, it, it's amazing to me of how perfect this distribution is, you know, from January 2020 to now. And in a way, you know, you go, well, maybe this makes sense, right? It's market makers are unwinding positions and dealers are unwinding positions and they don't want to have market impact. And maybe we're just perfectly offsetting the week's move by adjusting positions on Monday, right? But again, whatever happened in September 2020, the mean reversion trade, whether you look at it on a week basis or on a daily basis, has changed. Um, and again, the, the zero DT stuff is what is, is really fascinating to, to me about this. So does that like, as you think about that going forward, it's funny because it made me think about value investing and this has nothing to do with value investing, but like value investing didn't work for a very long period of time. And then you're <laughs> stuck with this idea of like, have things changed or do I, do I rely on the long-term <laughs> stuff? And so this is like a short-term version of that. Like, does this have, does this give you less confidence in the idea that these, you know, these op options expirations are going to be turning points? Y yeah. I mean, look, you... By and large, you know, it was like this this trade. And again, a lot of people are aware of this now um, that, hey, look, big puts are expiring, buy the dip, right? Or big calls are expiring, sell the rip. And and not necessarily that the market has to have this complete, you know, uh, reversion. And if you go back and, and we talked about this on our last, last podcast and elsewhere, like you can look at historical moves in the market and see, okay, yeah, OPEX hits and there's a little bit of weakness, some consolidation, which I think makes sense right now. Uh, you have the buyback blackout starting on the 15th. You know, uh, a lot of these names are very rich, losing a lot of call positions. There's like these factors you go, this is like, seems like a home run for mean reversion here, right? Like sell this and then buy the dip next week. That makes a lot of sense. But that trade's been completely broken uh, over the last several months. And so to your point on value investing, I, you know, uh, how, how long do you wait to see, you know, what, what the what the impact of this is? The other thing that's really interesting about it is is this idea of, you know, does the VIX expiration fall before or after? Does the FOMC fall before or after? And and those factors, there's a little bit of evidence there of, of to the whether that stuff matters. Uh, incidentally, the last several expirations, VIX expiration has fallen before uh, OPEX. And so maybe that's some of this 
you know, this time VIX expiration falls after. So there's additional hedging flows tied to volatility that can maybe add to some of this. Um, but but whatever it is, like, you know, it's one of those zero DT signals where you go like, think, think this is like a zero DT impact trade. And you can make a case for that because if I have a whole bunch of exposure, you know, that I need to hedge for OPEX, I could just put on these zero DT contracts, make a very calculated hedge, and then like uh, I'm done and I don't have to adjust anything for Monday. So, uh, you know, it's 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 curious and it, and it's weird and it's muddy the waters for me like if if this september to present number was 100 percent, then I, I i'd be much happier sitting here saying like this is the trade we all got to do because it works you know funny like this is this is what brings the short-term options guys and the long-term value guys together which is this concept that investing is really hard um you know you, you think you've got the thing that works and then suddenly it doesn't work anymore and so it's yeah. like no matter what you're doing no matter what part of investing you're in i mean that that rule seems to hold yeah and you know it, we've injected leverage into the system with these options. And, and, and that's, you know, so should it cause short-term distortions? Yes. But at the same point, if you have these zero DT chasing entities in NVIDIA and AMD and Apple and all this sort of stuff, that moves those stocks, right? And I, I you know, we've gone back and looked at this in detail in so many different ways that you go, okay, well, the zero DT and the S&P, maybe it doesn't matter. But if you own NVIDIA as a, as a long-only investor, you've owned it for a long time, you can see that all these short-term calls come in and implied volatility in this stock just goes through the roof as people are buying calls. So you have this signal, right? This signal that is really reflecting emotions that there's this chase going on. Um, and suddenly, you know, the price to sales of NVIDIA is at, what, like a 40 or something like that? Like it's yeah, higher than any stock ever in the history of the market. And so, you know, if you're a value investor, you're sitting there and you own this stock that just went up 100% in a, in a month, I, it must affect the way that you think about things because I don't think, you know, you're like, oh, we had a two-year horizon on this stock, but suddenly I got two years worth of movement in a week because of the fact that all this call flow just came in and, you know, it's on Wall Street bets that we should all buy this thing. And so like what I've, what I've kind of like, the, the way I like trying to phrase this is like you, you need like an options adjusted beta. So it's almost like you understand like, oh, there's all this call flow. in. so if I think that, you know, I have some long tech stocks here and, and the beta the, to the S&P is 1.5 per letter, just for sake of argument. Well, if all these people are buying calls well the beta of that stock, the S&P is now 2.5 or whatever, as opposed to 1.5, like, how do you adjust to that? Like, I think you have to adjust to that. But, you know, I'd I, I leave that to the value professionals in this case. Yeah. You know, NVIDIA is really interesting for me. Like it's a, yeah, I mean, I, back to your point on like holding NVIDIA, like I, I would never hold it in the first place because, you know, as a value investor, I would have never liked it. And, you know, I would never liked it at the beginning. And then like one of my weaknesses, I certainly would have sold it on the way up. Like I, I would yeah. never like, you know, 40 times sales or something. I would, I would never be around for 40 times sales. Yeah. But are you seeing like the same types of pressure on the, like we talked about kind of the market reversing because of a lot of call buying you know, coming into OPEX. Is the same thing going on with these, the NVIDIA's of the world? Like there's tons and tons of call buying here coming into OPEX? Yeah, uh, so the, the call buying really occurred over the last like two, three weeks. Kind of, you know, there was that day where Steve Cohen came out and Druckenmiller and like somehow all these guys on the same day said, we're all getting into AI, right? And, and those stocks went bananas. And then what happened is, you know, you had this volatility in AMDs and NVIDIA's and anything related to AI, those things went up 50%, right? In like a week. You know what I mean? And then if you look at over the last two weeks, they just stuck. Like, yeah, there's some intraday vol, but like NVIDIA hit 400 two weeks ago and it's at 400 now. And AMD hit 125 two weeks ago and it's at 125 now. And so 
through our lens, what happened is all these people bought calls and the value of those calls surges and the stock trades to where those big call positions are. And then suddenly there's like all this flow that's just tied to this strike and it just like pins the stock at this level. And now Friday, all of those call positions are going to go away. Now, whether that means the stock moves up a bunch or down a bunch, you know, we, we can make a couple of different cases for that. But the volatility is invoked in our, a lot of ways by or exacerbated by these call options. And then the call options at the same time shut the volatility off, and kind of pin the stock. On This chart here kind of explains this. There's a bunch of different ways. You know, get, Each one of these stocks is an individual, what we call gamma profile, right? This is for IWM. And what you see here on the x-axis is kind of a proprietary measure we call a gamma ratio. And that just basically looks at how much gamma there is relative to the underlying. And what you can see is that when you get more gamma, the volatility on a five-day basis here declines, right? So more gamma. And if you look at, you can look at this across a whole bunch of individual stock. It's the same story. A little bit of gamma means high volatility, but a lot of gamma means stuck, right? And you can see this, that there's this relationship here between low volatility and high gamma, right? And the, and the idea here is that there's all these people that are hedging their options positions, dealers or, or vol traders or whatever it may be, and that's causing price to just stick. You know, and I think these names that that also skyrocket that get like, you know, call implied ball of 100%, which is humongous, right? And these call skews, you've never seen these options prices before. That in, that also brings in us another class of trader, right? There's volatility traders who don't care about the fundamental of the stock or what the stock price is doing. They just see that the implied volatility is huge and they come in and they buy or sell those options and they're hedging it all day long, right? So all of a sudden, like there's a whole nother class of flow in these names that arguably wasn't there before. So, you know, it changes the kind of complexion, I guess, of, of what's taking place in the name, right? It trades in a different way, which kind of brings you back to this beta idea, I guess. So the, the idea is we don't know which direction it's going to go, obviously, but there's a decent chance it gets unstuck here after Friday. I mean, I, I would say, like, my money would be on some mean reversion, right? And, and the thing is, is like, well... Now what happens is like you get one day of weakness and then everyone goes, hey, uh, everyone else on you know Wall Street bets, like NVIDIA actually went down 1%. Let's all buy it and let's buy it with zero DT calls and you just see the thing. Like, so it's like the first order effect is like more volatility, right? That That's it. And then you're like, well, anytime you have lots of calls expiring, there's evidence that the stock mean reverts, right? And that that's always felt like very clear and stable, a stable concept to me going in. Uh, going in. And in fact, if you look at this, right? This chart here shows us the amount of gamma expiring, and this is actually in the S&P 500, amount of gamma expiring versus the one-day return post-OPEX. So if we know that calls are expiring, and we do this, we can measure this, right? If we think calls are expiring, which would mean we slide left on this axis, the market return the following day is almost always negative, right? And if you go to the right, if people are adding calls, the day after OPEX, then the market return is almost always positive. It's a very clear relationship here. And if you look at it on a single stock basis, it's the same thing. You know, it's not, nothing in finance is 100%, but this is a very strong, in my view, linear relationship. And what's so weird about this is that you go, oh, what are like the last six months returns, right? What are these weird dots? That's actually not the last six months. So it's like the zero DT thing may have changed this relationship around options expiration, but what what it seems to be doing almost is it's like the zero DTE flow is inviting like the way that the, the options expiration is being hedged. 
So in other words, this idea of like gamma increasing or decreasing being tied to you know, higher or lower returns in the market after options expiration still exists, even though that relationship, you know, the fade relationship I was talking about before has changed. I think the zero DT flows is allowing a different hedging protocol around options expiration. That's, that's kind of changed what the mechanics are. But the bottom line here is that, go look, uh, it's hard to believe that NVIDIA, AMD, name the AI stock, 50% of their gamma position is set to expire on Friday. Tesla, all of them, right? Huge, huge expiration as we show this. It's hard to believe that, the, that you know, you're not going to lose this, these call positions on net, right, on Friday. Now, they're probably going to reload next week slowly as people build new positions or roll to a new, you know, higher contract or whatever it is. So, like, we think the default way to play this is weakness next week, and then you can get this return, you know, and then we can resume the, the, the swing higher. So, to this point of value investing, you know, if you want to rotate positions, right, when do you want to time the rotation of your positions? When do you want to enter or exit a position? Rather than kind of maybe sticking your finger in the air and saying, like, this is the interesting time, um, these can be interesting moments because you know what the flow is that's moving the stock, right? It's not necessarily news or anything else. It's just these hedging flows adjustments that can distort the stock price in, in, in the short term. As, as we close up, I want to ask you about this JP Morgan trade because it's, it's something that's in the news a lot and it's something that like people like me don't understand that well. So it seems like there's, there's a very large JP Morgan fund that's executing mm -hmm. some sort of hedging trade at the end of every quarter. And that trade may or may not have a significant impact on the market. Um, so as we step through it, the first thing I want to ask you about is the type of trade they're doing, the types of options trade they're doing. Can you just talk about what that is and, and like what that trade is for? Yes, the, the fund in question is the JP Morgan Hedged Equity Fund. It's, uh, its symbol is J-H-E-Q-X. So you just Google that, it'll come up. It's got $15 billion in long-only assets. So they just own stocks. And the performance is pretty good uh, of those returns. So the reason it's called the Hedged Equity Strategy is because they put on this collar trade every quarter. And it's in their prospectus that this is what they do. And a collar trade means that you sell a call and you use that money to buy puts. In this case, they buy put spreads to kind of lower their cost. And the idea is that I don't want to spend the money to buy a put because that's just a tax on my portfolio. It's just a drag on my portfolio. So I'm going to fund that put by, by selling a call. Now, of course, the way that they do this is that at the end of every quarter, which in this case will be June 30th, they sell a call, generally 2 to 3% out of the money that expires on the next quarter. So in this case, it'll be September. And then they use the proceeds of that call to buy the, you know, some put spread that's generally roughly 5% of the money, right? And the idea is that obviously if the market crashes, they have this hedge on. And this trade, because the fund has grown in size, you know, 15 billion, th this size is, this trade has grown in, in size. So it's 45,000-ish contracts, uh, you know, several billion dollars notional are tied to this, this options trade. Um, aside from the fund's assets. And everybody now in the options universe, and even if you're not in the options universe, you, you watch this trade because you know the day it's going to expire. You think you have an understanding of how it's the new trade is supposed to be rolled on and how it's supposed to hedge and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so this has become this like really heavily watched uh, exercise in the market. Kind of like options expiration, uh, or call options or whatever it is, when everyone's doing it or everyone's watching it, like it tends, things tend to sort of break down or, or get distorted a little bit. So if you looked at the way that the market's traded the last 
two quarters. Uh, in December, I believe it was, uh, we pinned the JP Morgan strike. So what happens is the market tends to move almost like a magnet to where the big JP Morgan position is set to expire on the day of expiration. Uh, last month, or excuse me, last quarter in March, the strike was at 40.65. The market was about 2% below that uh, a day or two prior, and it rallied that day, that Friday, actually went through that strike and closed the market close at 4,100. And a lot of people were saying, well, this is hedging flows related to the JP Morgan, you know, uh, collar trade or collar roll, right? So the strike this month for that, the call strike is at 43.20. Today we closed, I think, about 30 or 40 points over that in the S&P. So the idea is that this 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 level is a magnet. Either if we're around that call, the market will draw to it, or if we're around that put, the market will draw to it. And I think it, there are hedging flows, I think, that are tied to it. You can make that case. Uh, I think there's a lot of, when everyone watches the same level, the market kind of like moves to that. It's like that famous gumball exercise where like, if we all guess how many gumballs are in the machine, like in the machine, like the mean of our guesses, is like that that's what the number of gumballs is. It's kind of like the same thing. Like we're all watching that, you know, that one strike. And so somehow like all of our trades like push us to that level. I don't know. Um, but the issue is, is that because everyone knows that this trade is going on, I think that the way they hedge it, like JP Morgan has to end up with the same caller strategy, but the way that the dealers may implement the trade must change drastically now that everyone's watching, right? Like, we were talking to uh, a guy that used to run the city derivatives desk and a couple others. And, and he was set, talking about these big trades he used to do. And he's like, when everybody knows I have to hedge, we would just go to lunch or go do something else because everyone's expecting us to do this. And, you know, there's a negative expected return because of that. Right. If everyone knows I need to hedge, I can't just hedge the way they're expecting. Cause I'm just, you know, disadvantaging myself. So, this trade was heavily watched. Everyone's watching this strike and, you know, it's a big amount of flow. It may have a short-term impact in terms of like right around quarter end. You know, there's a little bit of strange movement, particularly if we're in and around that strike. Again, this time it's 4320. Um, but it's hard to say there's a longer term impact or issue, you know, because of that strike in, in the way that it exists today. There's some arguments to be made when the market is crashing and if the market trades down to around the, where the put strike is, there are some arguments to be made that that trade can suppress market volatility because the, the idea is that, you know, dealers are, you know, hedging in some certain form or fashion that could, you know, support the market a little bit. So that is something to be aware of. So it's helpful to be aware of where these strikes will be. And again, um, you know, they're set to roll on the 30th. But I, I would say most of the time it doesn't matter. If the market crashes a lot, maybe you want to pay attention to it. If we get around the quarter end, you want to watch it. But then the other issue that compounds this is that there's always big funds, uh, fund flows on quarter end anyways, right? So how do you actually like pull out what was just some sovereign wealth fund, you know, reallocating versus, you know, oh, that was all JP Morgan, you know, roll effect. So um, it, it, it's a no it, it adds noise on uh, <laughs> those quarter ends, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, I remember like last last quarter when it went above, like people were calling it pop the collar or something, like what they were trying to do, like trying to get it like to break. Um, and yeah, I guess they, and, they, they did to some extent last quarter. Yeah, but um, but this, the, the, so my, my problem with that is sort of like, well, JP Morgan got screwed on this. It's like, I don't know if they got screwed because those are cash settled positions, right? Because you're trading the S&P 500 index position. So it's cash settled. Uh, I, th I think if the argument was that there's going to be stock settlement, like if you, if you held spiders or Tesla 
over expiration and there's stock shifting around because of that. But this is cash settled. So maybe the broker's like, hey, I'm going to jam this thing, but I'm going to hedge out JP Morgan at 9 a.m. And then whatever I do for the rest of the day doesn't matter to JP Morgan because they got this hedge on, right? So what they used to do is they used to like put a trade on in the morning. Like they put like a starter structure on, let's say 10.30 in the morning. And then, you know, they're hedging with futures and they're doing like EFPs and all this, you know, whatever's going on, right, throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, they would adjust the strikes based on how much the market moved, right? So the idea is like, we put on the structure, the market moved this much, and to compensate the broker or adjust the trade or whatever it is, like we're gonna print these strikes to basically like cross them again at like 410 right before the market closes, right? So they would adjust that position. I don't, why can't they, maybe they just did the same thing you know, they bought a zero DTE call or something like that, right? And and then when the market rallies a whole bunch, well, JP Morgan doesn't care because, you know, they, they have this long call that the broker put on for them. So it's not, I think it's very hard to say this is exactly, you know, the, the pop the collar thing sounds great, but maybe maybe didn't necessarily work that way, right? I mean, um, who, who's to say one way or the other, I guess, is, is what I'm getting at. So do you think that the general conclusion for like longer term investors is there's probably a lot of short term people that are competing with each other to try to make money off of this thing. But for longer term investors, it probably doesn't matter that much. I mean, do you think that's a fair way to look at it? I, I would say to the upside, I don't think it matters that much when the market is moving higher, particularly if like, you know, that call strike is like weighing the money. It's going to cause noise on the day. And I think if you were looking at the market, you go like, we just traded down for some reason and we hit the JP Morgan. Like, then you can draw some clues. Like, okay, I know why this distortion on the day was there because of this trade. Where, where you could argue that there's a longer term implication is if the market is very weak and selling off and we're around the, where the put spread is, right? The various legs of that put spread, then volatility can change uh, around that event, right? So I think that that's where it becomes interesting. So like one of the arguments was last year, why was there lower volatility maybe in the market, even though the market was crashing in lowers? Why didn't the VIX spike so much? And I think this was around September of last year, or maybe it was June of last year, for, forgive me on, on the timing. But if if the dealer is long this put strike, so JP Morgan is, they own a put spread, right? They're, let's say they're long the 4,000 and they're short the 3,000 strike, right? The market gets down to around 3,000 3, strike. We know dealers own that strike. So they may be hedging in a way that supports the market around that 3,000 strike, right? Around that very lower uh, lower bound of that JP Morgan spread. And if it's billions of dollars of daily hedging flow, then maybe that stops the VIX from spiking and holds the market up a little bit in that case. So that could be a situation where there's a longer term sort of like, you know, fingerprint or effect of that trade. Um, but, you know, if you look conclusively back, like I looked over the last three or four years of, of um, you know, where the collar was positioned and how the market moved. And in some days, it you know, it's a magnet and, 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 and half of them and the other ones, particularly early on when no one was really tracking that trade, um, it, it seemed kind of inconclusive. Like there wasn't a strong signal. Like we pinned it last two, two quarters ago. It was certainly in play last quarter. You know, uh, and so what we'll see it on on Friday, you know, uh, excuse me, uh, two weeks from now, um, it's possible. But again, as a longer term value investor, it's like kind of a good to know in case there's some distortions on the day. But but yeah, back to your original point, it was a very long winded way of me telling you probably doesn't matter. Well, thank you for spending so much time with this. You know, I'm one of these guys who likes to pretend I know a lot about options. And then every time you come on, I realize that I do not know a lot about options. So it's it's like I love our episodes where we can learn a lot. And these are, these are always ones where we learn a lot. So we really appreciate you talking to us. 
Yeah, well, anytime I listen to you guys talk about uh, value uh, investing and factorization all stuff, uh, you know, it's the same. It's the same feeling. I I, I know nothing. Uh, I'm totally lost. <laughs> I feel like a baby. <laughs> also, you're 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 getting up there in terms of our, our most frequent guest. I think this is your third time. So I think our most frequent guest has only been on four times. So uh, we'll have to have all you right. back sometime, and you can break the record. I, I would like that. Anytime you want to uh, talk about something, if we get a zero DT flash crash, we can do a we can do a hot take. How's that? That sounds good. If, if people want to learn more about uh, Spot Gamma or about you, where are the best places to go? Uh, SpotGamma.com is where we uh, have our site. Uh, you can sign up for our daily newsletter. There's a trial there if you want to try that out. We write about the S&P 500 every day, both with a short-term view and a little bit of a longer-term view. Uh, you can look at these OPEX positionings, things like that. And then uh, I'm also at Spot Gamma on Twitter where you can find me uh, posting various musings. And having a lot more followers than me. <laughs> well, thank you again. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.